Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today. Uh, hopefully you can hear my audio. Let's just go over a couple of quick things before we jump into the episode. Um, we got a better camera. Look at that. So you can see me a lot better. It's not foggy like it was uh, last week. Um, we uh, resolved our phone issue where the phone was ringing constantly last episode. So hopefully that is taken care of today. If Mr. Restricted is uh, wants to try, he certainly can. The other thing, too, is I want to make sure we're going to play the Wall Street Journal's audio. Um, let me know if it's too soft, if I'm too loud, uh, vice versa. Uh, but we're going to play the Wall Street Journal's audio from the podcast. We're going to play a couple of sound bites from it. I've got six sound bites I want to play. And uh, lastly, we've got the call-in thing. When If you listen to the Almost Awakened podcast, uh, we had an issue with the call-ins last week. It was simply because my computer audio, somehow the speaker was set to the microphone. Um, and so it was ringing, but we just didn't hear it on my end. Um, but we're going to rock and roll today. So the Wall Street Journal got an exclusive interview with the inside leadership of the Mormon Church uh, from those at Enzyme Peak, uh, as well as uh, Elder Cause. Um, from the LDS Church. And so they, the Wall Street Journal had uh, two reporters, a man and a woman. They went into the Enzyme Peak building and got a chance to see it and to ask questions about uh, Enzyme Peak, uh, the financial fund. And so I, I want to play some of these sound bites. We're going to start off at the 245 mark. I'll pull it up here. Whoop, give me a second here. I've just got to share the screen. I had it shared, and then I had to get out of here a moment ago, and we'll be back in. So um, there it is. So up in the top left-hand corner is the Wall Street Journal's podcast. Uh, there's Elder Nelson in the Salt Lake Temple, as well as the billions and billions and billions of dollars, $124 billion plus, to be exact, uh, which is a lot of money. Um, so let's begin with soundbite number one. Uh, also, would love to uh, have any of you write your comments down. At the end of the show, we'll try to do a little bit of a call-in segment if anybody wants to call in. But until then, let's just stick with comments. If you've got any questions on anything going on, please uh, put your comments there. But here is soundbite number one. Let me know about the volume on this, too, in the comments. So last month, Ian and Rachel flew out to Salt Lake City and got to see Ensign Peak's headquarters. It's nice. Oh, this is lovely. It's so loud. It's very unassuming. The name of the firm doesn't appear on the, the building's directory in the lobby. When you get inside, in a lot of respects, it looks the same as any investment firm would look. CNBC is on television. Copies of the Wall Street Journal are on the table in the lobby. In other ways, however, it's immediately very obvious that it's different from other investment firms. On the walls are paintings that are almost exclusively either scenes from the Bible or scenes from Mormon history, like pioneers from the 1800s trekking across the plains to what is now Utah. And if you look out a window in the lobby, you'll also see the Utah landscape. So is this, that where they, they came down? Yeah, that's where that? Brigham Young oh, came down. so cool. And then in Isaiah, it says, somewhere we'll build an ensign to the nation where people will be gathered. And that's what, and that's why they named that peak right there, Ensign Peak. That mountain is also how the fund got its name. And uh, so there's the first segment. And the only thing I want to note here is it's interesting that 
the Wall Street Journal, they go into uh, Enzyme Peaks building. And the building is this tall, multi-story building. And there is no signage for Enzyme Peak. There is no signage outside. There's no signage in the front lobby. There is no signage uh, near the elevator telling them which floor Enzyme Peak is on. But once they get to Enzyme Peak, uh, once they get into the actual office of Enzyme Peak, it is decorated like an LDS building. It has LDS artwork everywhere. It has paintings from the Book of Mormon. It's got paintings from the Bible. It's got paintings from church history, uh, the pioneers going west. But note that the church doesn't want anybody who doesn't know already to know what this building is and how to get to it. That by itself is odd and strange. So just to note that, um, let's go to uh, soundbite number two. He actually keeps an ancient Roman coin and he called it a mite, which is a reference to the biblical story of the widow's mite. It was a small Roman coin. Oh, wow. That, that they would have paid, paid their offerings in the... That's so cool. And he does this because he says it's a reminder of the biblical story of a widow donated to the temple in Jerusalem, basically all that she had. So, anyway, it's just a reminder, I think, about the, the purpose of the funds. Yeah. And, you know, many of the funds come from... People don't make a lot of money. Yeah. It just helps remind me. We want to be prudent and careful. He said that it was tithing from people all over the world, some of whom are very poor, and that he wanted to be very careful about guarding it and taking care of it. Many denominations of Christianity have some form of tithing. And for the Mormon church especially, tithes are central and come with more formality. Everyone is supposed to tithe 10% in the LDS church, no matter how much money you have. If you want to have what's called a temple recommend, which allows you to go into the Mormon temples, which are the holiest space in the religion, you have to tithe and you have to have an interview with a church official where you sort of tell them that that's what you're doing. No one audits you, but there's more pressure on Mormons to tithe 10%. So on this segment here, uh, what you end up with is the the person at Enzyme Peak who is the spokesman, he's the face man that the church picks to have this conversation with the Wall Street Journal. He ends up wanting to start off trying to control the narrative by bringing out this widow's, widow's might. And, and let me just suggest to all of you, if, if any of you want to go on eBay right now and look up old Roman coins or look for the widow's might, you'll find a ton of these coins uh, for sale uh, on eBay for a very little price. It's not a real... Uh, collectible artifact. Uh, we have them everywhere. In fact, um, in fact, by the way, uh, it should be noted that uh, we have one at Family Pond in Hurricane Utah. So at Family Pond, um, you'll notice here, if let's see here, if I can get that up there a little closer, that is a copper Roman coin. This one dates from 238 to 415 A.D., says the Roman copper was common coinage during the reign of the Roman Empire in the 3rd and 4th centuries AD. The coins feature a profile of the current emperor on one side with either a spiked crown or a laurel wreath. We really, I don't think, and again, someone can do the research for me. Feel free to put it in the comments. I don't think we actually know exactly what the widow's might would have been. And there are lots of these old Roman coins kind of passed off as this. 
and they're easy to get. And I think they're five or 10 bucks total. But you can see that this, this spokesman for the church, he's trying to right away grab the narrative, take up some of the time, tell a story. It's what Mormons do really well is to tell a story uh, and to be off in the weeds somewhere. And so he spends a moment uh, talking about this widow's might. But, but here's the thing. For a moment, and again, he's talking about how the church treats the widow's might, how many members of the church uh, sacrifice to pay tithing. They, they give of their substance. They, they uh, pay money that could have gone to other things, but they make this deep spiritual sacrifice. And that the church takes these sacrifices so seriously. But to some degree, you disenfranchise the widow and her might when you store up the money forever and ever and ever and ever. You have 124 plus billion. People in the church have made deep sacrifices to pay their tithing with the belief, because the church told them, and they held a belief that the church never corrected, that Members of the church, when they pay their tithing, this money goes to build the kingdom. This money goes to help out the poor. This money goes to good causes, and it helps us build the kingdom of God on earth today. And we ought to recognize, like, when you store up this much money, you have taken the widow's might sacrifice, and you have essentially disenfranchised her and her money by storing it away never to use it, except for a rainy day that may never come. Why not do some good with it during the life of the widow? Why not go do some good things? It's one thing when you say, look, we give $40 million a year to humanitarian aid, which is the number that Elder Oak said. 40 million compared to 120 something billion dollars in the bank. That's quite a difference. And there's, it's quite a discrepancy. Um, Jeff here says, my TBM mom, my TBM mom is a widow who only receives government benefits and believes she is not temple worthy if she does not pay tithing on it. It's her widow's might, yet she can't afford her medical expenses. That's the kind of stuff the church puts guilt and shame and pressure and invisible rewards on paying tithing. And I like I paid tithing. And if having left the church, I was like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm sure some of it went to some good. And now that I'm on the outside and I see all this money saved and I see how this thing acts as a corporation rather than a religion, um, it, it hurts. It hurts to know that my money doesn't go to good causes. So now we're about to find out as we go into further on these sound bites, the discrepancies and inconsistencies in the church's story about why people pay tithing, about why this money has been saved, and and why the church has kept this number a secret. Ian and Rachel wanted to know more about how tithing plays into the church's finances. But the officials wouldn't provide specifics on questions like how much the church gets in tithes, what the church's budget is, and how much goes into Ensign Peak each year. When they asked church leaders why the numbers are so secret, they got one explanation from Bishop Gerald Cosset, who presides over the fund. 
On, on the, the question of how much, we are not going to be able to answer all the questions that you ask about specific numbers. Okay. Those funds for us are sacred, and, and so the, the members of the church have a great faith in the fact that they are managed with a great care and wisdom, and they are all only used for the purpose of the church. I cover the financial world. It is not common for investment pools of this size to not share how much money that they manage. So what we can share with you, and thank you for your questions. The faithful members of the church donate several billion dollars a year. And those, uh, those are tithes and offerings. So we treat them as sacred. We don't flaunt them. We don't throw them out uh, for public uh, review and, and, and critique. We treat them. But for all. So sacred, not secret. Here's the trouble. Lots of things in the church, I can say like are sacred. The sacrament prayer, sacred. The priesthood. Ordinances, temple ordinances, certainly sacred, but so are the ordinances that happen in a ward building on a Sunday afternoon after church, right? Like there are lots of sacred things, the bread and the water, sacred, the Savior's name, sacred, his doctrines and teachings, sacred, the idea of sacred, not secret, being a cover for anything and everything that they want it to be is frankly bullshit. You see, you can use that excuse with anything. Ah, we didn't tell you exactly about the seer stone because it's sacred. We didn't tell you about Joseph Smith's polygamy because mm, it was sacred. We didn't tell you he married young brides or the wives of other women. Well, because it was sacred. You see, at some point you start to think about this in a deeper way and you go, how come some things that are sacred are secret? And how come some things that are sacred are not? And what in the hell makes $124 billion sacred? Because it's tithing money? That seems a lot less sacred than the sacrament prayer, a lot less sacred than the ordinances that happen in a ward building, a lot less sacred than the historical stories we tell about Moroni, Nephite spectacles, and your old uh, Elsa Johnson's arm being raised. You see, we've got to stop this. The LDS Church avoids transparency and honesty and authenticity at every single turn. To the point where sacred, not secret, is their excuse to cover up anything they don't want to tell you about. So that's a fact. Now, leaders don't want to be honest. They don't want to be transparent. Now, let me ask you, when it comes to the seer stone, why didn't you know the full story? Why didn't you know the context of Joseph Smith's treasure digging? Why didn't you know that Joseph used a stone and a hat instead of Nephite spectacles that were prepared by the Nephites and by Heavenly Father for us to be able to translate the Book of Mormon? They were the tool, as we talked about last week, they were the tool that Joseph Smith said he was using for that work. How come you didn't know about young brides? How come you didn't know about polyamory? Or polyandry, sorry. How come you didn't know about 
Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie's teachings not being okay and acceptable? How come you didn't know anything about the Adam-God doctrine? And when you did ask about it, somebody said those were just the anti-Mormons and they were just trying to, to razz you and trying to stir stuff up, but they just weren't being honest. They were, they were uh, deceived themselves maybe uh, at best, and at worst, they were intentional deceivers. You know what I've discovered is as I've sat here for the last 20 years and really the last 10, what I realize is those anti-Mormons, which now I'm one of them, those anti-Mormons uh, have absolutely been way more honest. Like if I ask who is the least honest, who is the least transparent, who is the least vulnerable about Mormon history? Oh, it's the Mormon church. You see, it's the church that is the worst at telling their own story. And at some point, the excuses, things like, hmm, sacred, not secret, gets old. So their reason here, their initial reason to the Wall Street Journal, now I want you to pay attention. The church gives multiple narratives. The church gives multiple narratives about why they saved this money aside and why they didn't tell the members. So first, their reason is, look, these are sacred funds. We're putting them away. Uh, there, there could be a rainy day someday. Um, that we're put, We saved this money. This, this money is the widow's might, right? So now we're about to start getting the reasons. So let's go back to the video and let's play the next soundbite. Welcome back. The Mormon church does have an explanation for why it's keeping $100 billion in Ensign Peak. The explanation that church officials gave was that it's basically a rainy day fund, that at the moment the economy is good, tithing revenues are strong. The, the tithing revenues are here. One day, the tithing revenues may not be there. Mm -hmm. And who knows when that's going to happen? Well, if something like that were to happen again, we won't have to stop missionary work. We won't have to stop building temples. We won't have to stop the humanitarian work. We won't have to close down the universities. We'll be able to do all the things that we're doing now because we're taking care of the resources. Mm -hmm. That's Church officials say that they don't need this money to pay for the basic church expenses, like the missionary programs and the temples and the universities that they own but that in the future they're expecting there will be another downturn and that they'll need the money just to fund basic church programs and that that will be especially true as they push into poorer areas where the tithing can't support their operations the way it can in the U.S. But we asked Roger Clark how much they dipped into Enzyme Peak's reserves during the 2008 financial crisis, and he said basically not at all, that instead what they did was cut the budget. $100 billion as a rainy day fund for a financial crisis seems awfully large when you used almost none of the money that you already had in 2008, which was the biggest financial crisis in almost 100 years. Some Mormons have raised another possibility for why the church is maintaining such a large investment fund, a theory that's based on faith. Like other Christian religious groups, Mormons believe that there will be a second coming of Jesus Christ and that he will then rule on earth for a thousand years. But they also believe that as the second coming approaches, you're going to see more war, more earthquake, more hurricanes. 
There has been a lot of speculation that the fund is being saved for this period of hardship before the second coming. Several former employees said they heard Roger Clark reference the second coming in explaining what the purpose of the money in Enzyme Peak was. The church denied this. They said that has nothing to do with it. Um, But people continue to think that that could be part of what the fund is for. All right. So here you start to get a glimpse of the changing narrative. So first off, the employees there know, remember, recall, shared that Roger Clark, who's the face man here in this conversation, Roger Clark, who is one of the head guys at Enzyme Peak, has uh, said on more than one occasion that this money is being saved, connected to the second coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Messiah of the world. So that when Jesus comes again, we have funds to throw him a party and to facilitate the millennial reign, which, by the way, he's Jesus, and he almost assuredly isn't going to need it, which is strange on its own. The LDS Church denies to the Wall Street Journal that this is the reason, and instead they impose that this is a rainy day fund. This is when the economy takes a downward turn. This is when things go south. Now, let's go over some of the things they said. They said instead of closing things, they're already closing things. Has anybody looked at how many MTCs have been closed in the last five years? They are closing MTCs, wards, and stakes all across developed countries. Go talk to somebody in Sweden. Go talk to somebody in Europe. Talk to somebody in the Midwest out in the mission field. Here in Southern Utah, the church is growing. Do you know why? Because all the old people who are zealous and uh, Mormonism is all they know, they move to Southern Utah because it's warm here. There's no snow in the winter. I don't have a snow shovel. I've never needed one. I'm lucky if I get a dusting once a year. Uh, so So the area looks like it's growing, but the reality is it's just people moving. The church is no longer growing in developed countries because those people have access to the internet. Here's Brett Cooper's comment. Brett says, they talk about saving for a rainy day. What they're doing is withholding all charitable donations while they save up for a 10-year rainy day fund. Never have they told their members to withhold their charitable donations until they have paid off all their debts and have a rainy day fund. It's always been pay tithing even if you cannot pay your debt. So a mixed message, right, Brett? Thank you for that. So as we also note, they so the closings are already happening. The other thing they say is, what if tithing goes down? Like, what if we hit a, a lull and tithing goes down? Well, guess what? Tithing's already going down. But it's because members are leaving. People are discovering Mormon history in developed countries due to access to the internet. And the church is beginning to plateau, if not shrink. So using the excuse like, look, someday it's going to get really bad and we're going to need those tithing funds, those widow's mites. We're going to need those to be able to keep us going. The reality is you're going to have a whole lot less members. It's already begun, right? It is now a stone cut without hands rolling up the mountain, unstoppable. It's happening, folks. The Mormon church is beginning to decline because its message and its deception and its contradictory history are becoming more and more known by the average membership. It used to be, I used to, when I was a bishop in Sandusky, Ohio, 
of a congregation that ranged between 115 to 140. Um, when I started, it was 115. When I ended, it was about 115. In the middle of my time, we got up to about 140. I don't know if that's to my credit or to my detriment. I don't know. But what I do know is that uh, those folks um, didn't know anybody other than one person in our entire ward who left over the previous 10 years saying some little inkling that the history was messy. When I moved away from the Snusky Ward, I was still active. I was the ward mission leader. Uh, I had just been released a couple weeks earlier because of the move. And um, I, you know, when I left, I still to that point, like, okay, I knew four or five people who had left. And now today, our ward is aware of about 10 people who have left uh, activity due to the history being messy. I could sit here and name them on my two hands. The church is now at a point where every member in the developed world knows somebody and probably knows three or four or five people, perhaps a few families who have left the church due to uh, coming to an awareness of the messy history and losing belief. So the idea that tithing is going to go down, but we're still going to have this giant church and we're going to just keep it going. Let's just say, for instance, there's three to four active, uh, three to four million active members in the world. Let's say in 15 years, 20 years, that is one million active members in the world. And I don't think that's out of line, by the way. I think you're going to start to see this uh, ramp up faster and faster. And if you remember back in the day, I'm 41 years old. If you remember back in the day, we used to say like, oh, now we're at 12 million. Oh, now we're at 13 million. Um, I think the time is coming when us post-Mormons are going to celebrate. Oh, now we're at 9 million. Oh, now we're at 7 million. That's coming. Um, and so the church isn't going to need this much money to take care of fewer people. So you might as well spend it now, Mormonism. LDS Church, you might as well start doing some really cool things because you may not have a whole lot of people left to do it with uh, when, when you know 20 years goes by or 30 years goes by or 40 years goes by. If, and you say, like, that's impossible. Well, if you look at how much the church has grown just in the last 30 years or 40 years, and now you say it depreciates by the same exact rate, mm, I don't think that's too crazy. Paul here says seven families affected in the ward I'm in. So it's happening, folks. The church is in decline specifically in developed countries where people have access to the internet. So the idea that we're going to have money that's going to depreciate, but the same amount of members are going to be around um, and we're going to have a chance uh, to take care of these people during a lull just doesn't make sense. The, the last point here is they make the comment, look, we had a recession in 2008. LDS Church, you must have then used some of that money since that's what you're saving it for. And the LDS church looked back at the microphone and said, um, no, no, there was a recession and we just didn't use it. So their answer becomes, oh, what's that word again? Mm, bullshit. So that's what it is. Brett says, uh, as a bishop, did you have any families under your jurisdiction? How did you handle it? So when I was a uh, serving as a bishop, I was aware of the one person who had left about five years earlier. I had gone to his house and made attempts 
to talk to him as one who understood the messiness, was still in, but had compassion, love, and understanding and would validate the concerns of that person. He was so bitter at that point that I couldn't even state my position, which was one that I knew the church may not be true. Uh, I had hoped it was, uh, but but I also knew it was so messy that there was a chance and a good chance at that, that it wasn't true. Um, but he wouldn't even let me convey that. Um, I wasn't there to tell him he was wrong. I was there to tell him that every one of his concerns were valid and real and legitimate, um, but that there was reason to believe or to be in anyway. Uh, I also had another person. Um, I went and did a fireside at our ward on uh, the translation. I think it was the translation. I know I talked about seer stones and Emma's quote about the stone being in the hat. And um, as I did the fireside, I was very honest, like, hey, guys, some of these things you don't know. And some of these things are contradictory to the narrative we tell, but this is the true history. And when I was done, a, uh, I always tilt my head because I have a little bit of indigestion sometimes. I take Prilosec and stuff. Um, and I just feel like when I tilt my head, it allows me to kind of keep talking while I, while I deal with that. But regardless of that, um, as I got down with the fireside, a young member came up. We, we were an award that got a lot of med students. <coughs> Excuse me. We got a lot of med students. And so every year we'd get three or four families in our ward that were serving an internship at the local hospital. And uh, one of these med students, a, a future doctor, uh, came up to me after the presentation and said, I am struggling deeply with all of this messiness. And I didn't know anybody would be safe. So I've just kept it to myself. But what the things you said tonight indicated that it was safe. It was, it was safe to talk to you. And so I built a great friendship. We're still in, in communication today and reach out to each other and wish each other happy birthday or have uh, communication with each other. Um, you know, there's only 44 people watching right now, but maybe at some point he'll be watching and throw a comment in. But I sat down with him. I sat down with his wife. I explained to his wife that it is messy. A lot of it doesn't add up. The critics have better answers for a lot of these questions and concerns. Um, but, but I'm here. And I'm, I'm still coming and I still love the church and I'm still trying to, to figure my way out, uh, my way through it. And, uh, and uh, this med student um, was deeply grateful. Even to this day, he says, like, you saved my marriage. You helped my wife to see that I wasn't crazy, that there was some uh, uh, reality to the stuff that I was seeing and learning and thinking about and talking about. So those were two instances. Since I've left the ward and moved out here to Southern Utah, uh, I've had, again, more than probably six, seven, eight other people, um, and I can name them, um, uh, reach out to me and say, like, Bill, like, just so you know, I'm, I no longer go. Hey, Bill, I, I stopped believing. Hey, Bill, this, this doesn't work. Hey, Bill, I, I think you're right. I'm going to keep going, but I don't believe it anymore. And so those were the stories that I got feedback mostly after I left. And I think there's a reason because when you leave and you're also stating, I, I kept being public and even more public uh, about my criticism of the church, you continually become a safer space. If you're out, you're an outsider now, you've left, you moved away. There's less threat. There's less risk inside of you to go talk to that person who's, who's moved away. Uh, so anyway, there's that. So when this recession hit in 2008, they didn't even use the money. So again, their excuse was bullcrap. So it's a mixed message about the second coming and other stuff, and none of it adds up. So let's continue. Let's see if that's the story they stick to.
Were you surprised that there would be a $100 billion fund for this kind of end-of-days scenario? Yes and no. On the one hand, the number itself is unbelievably jarring, especially with only 16 million Mormons. On the other hand, Mormons have been famous for a long time for sort of preparing for doomsday scenarios. The church for many years advised members to have at least a year supply of food, a year supply of water, a year supply of fuel, things like that. The church actually has an absolutely massive grain silo in Salt Lake City. And they say that none of this is for the second coming specifically, but a lot of people, including some members of the church, continue to think that it is. When you were sitting with these Ensign Peak officials, did you ask them about this theory? Yes, yes. We asked them, and church officials said that this was simply not the case, that they did expect Jesus Christ to return at some point, but they didn't know when that would be. They didn't know what that would look like. They didn't know if financial assets would have any value at that point, and that the money was about the work they wanted to do to build the church before then and not about preparing for, for the second coming. Are they defensive about that? I mean, why would Clark say this privately to people, but he wouldn't say it to you? They were defensive about it. And in fact, church leaders are very sensitive about their beliefs about the second coming being misconstrued. And when we asked about it in the interview, their head of public relations interrupted us and admonished us to be respectful in the way that we write the story. So I, I have a follow-up question for Mr. Clark. With regard to the second coming, how would that work in terms of the investments that Ensign Big holds? How would you get assets out of investments if there was, a, if the second coming were to happen? May I just say, I hope you'll be respectful of our faith and what we believe as Christians, as Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are very respectful and we view the Savior's role in our life as very important. So I just hope the nature of your questions is respectful of our doctrine and our faith as well. They all affirm that they believe in the second coming, that they believe it'll happen at some point, but that is absolutely not what the money is for. So of all of the things that they spoke most clearly and emphatically on, this was actually it, where they were denying that the second coming had anything to do with why they were putting this money away. So they deny it's for the second coming. It's not the second coming. Yeah, we told our employees it's the second coming, but it's not the second coming. It's for a recession. But when there was a recession, we didn't use it. Um, it's it's so that when we have less members who pay less tithing, we can keep everything going and not close things down. But right now we're closing a lot of stuff down and then there won't be any members to spend the money on. You can see like the answers are just not adding up. Everything seems to be pretty damn insane in terms of how their answers are contradicting each other. You see, this is what happens when you bullshit. This is what happens when you lie. This is what happens when you deceive everybody around you is you get caught up in your own lies. So you're telling Fred one story and then you're telling Gary another story and then you're telling Jim story number three and then you got to keep everybody away from each other. And this is what the church does too. It isolates its members away from the public narrative. It isolates, isolates the public away from the correlated narrative. And then it throws out a little bone here or there to try to appease the doubters and the post-Mormons. Um, but it never wants those three groups talking to each other. It doesn't want those three groups 
sitting down and going like, uh, this is the story they gave me. This is this isn't matching what they told you. Hmm, that's really weird. And so that's what you run into. Lie upon lie, deceit upon deceit. Yes, Brett, that's exactly what the Mormon church is. Brian says, the hundred plus billion dollar fund has definitely given active Mormons something to think about. Many are very troubled about it when it is known, when it is Sorry, let me try this again. Many are very troubled about it when it is known. None of it has gone to help those of need. So there you have it. Uh, we're not doing a lot of good with that money. Um, we're just storing it away. And the day we get to use it, there may not be a whole lot of real Mormons believing and active left. So why wait? Well, the other thing they mentioned here was the year supply right? Mormons are supposed to have a year supply. I had a food supply, damn it. I had one. I had a supply of, of stuff from the Bishop storehouse that every time um, they did a packing uh, event, I would go and I would purchase and sometimes can my own wheat and flour and sugar and all these other things. And so down in my, in my basement, um, I had these metal cans with the white lids and they had labels on them and they said different things on them, wheat and sugar and flour. And they told me how good they were for the, how long they were good for. And then I never used it because I go grocery shopping. And so you set all this food aside and some people do use it. Let's be honest here for a moment. Let's throw the church a bone. I knew of like two or three families that when they were out of work or really fell on hard times, they used their food storage to uh, get them through. But let's use our brain for just a second. Let's use some logic. What if they had taken the money spent on that food storage and just put it into a rainy day fund? Oh, like the church. If they did a rainy day fund with that money, the three families that helped themselves out with food storage would have helped themselves out in the exact same way and probably even better had they just had a cash reserve, number one. Number two, the other 98% of the families in my ward wouldn't have food storage. They'd have a cash reserve, a food storage that they didn't use. Instead, they'd have a cash reserve. Hmm. Maybe a year's supply of food, fuel, and water, when looked at collectively over the entire ward or stake or region or the entire North America or all developed countries or even third world countries for that matter, maybe food storage and a year's supply of fuel and water almost serve nobody any good. In the last 200 years, what percentage of Mormons have benefited by actually using their food storage, fuel, and water? 2%? 3%? How many members would have benefited if they just had a cash reserve? Oh, like the LDS church. Oh, 100%. Okay, that makes sense. Jeff says, be respectful of our doctrine. What about its doctrine in DNC 83.6 about using its storehouse to care for the widows and the poor? Hey, I'm all for that, by the way. That's one of the great things the church does is the bishop's storehouse. I served at the storehouse as much as anybody in my ward. 
excuse me, <clears throat> I would go there and I would walk up and down the aisles and fill these orders, put them in bags. Great thing. I will throw the, the church a bone on this one, Jeff. It is one of the most incredible things the church does is having a storehouse of food that it gives to the poor. Here's the problem. In developed countries, you don't have to really be that poor to get Bishop storehouse food. On the other hand, if you live in underdeveloped countries, you, the church doesn't really operate its storehouse at all in those places. And for those who do get help, they're only able to get help for about a month or two. If you look up a foundation, Jeff, I, I'd ask you to do this. Look up a foundation called the Liahona Foundation. And the members of the Liahona Foundation are going to be very cordial and respectful about the LDS church because they want to be seen as working with it. But get some of those people aside privately and have a conversation with them and ask them if they feel like the LDS Church does a sufficient job taking care of its members in third world countries. It doesn't. It falls flat on its face. Here in North America, we often pay mortgages and car payments. Um, we often pay uh, medical expenses. We pay lots of different kinds of bills. In other countries, it doesn't work that way. And the church loves, again, these two narratives, that this is how the storehouse operates, except over here where it doesn't. Um, so, Jeff, I appreciate your comment, and I'm trying to be um, sensitive to the good that the church does, but I want you to also understand that your church is deceptive, and it's dishonest. And at some point, we all have to raise our hand and say, I've, I've had enough. I want honesty and transparency. I want vulnerability and authenticity. Those are the things that matter to me now. Maybe those things don't matter to Jeff. Um, Alan asked, do they still push food storage, gas, and water? I don't know, Alan. Uh, or Eileen, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I don't know. I've been gone here for a little while. I excommunicated just over a year ago. And as I said last uh, time around with RFM and Jonathan Streeter, not my circus and not my clowns. So I don't know. Um, but your supply of food, water, fuel, it really makes zero sense when you say, what would help people more, that or just having a cash reserve instead of spending it on that? Let's go to the next soundbite. Given these denials, Ian and Rachel wanted to better understand the fund's secrecy. If this money is really for an economic downturn, why hadn't they talked publicly about it? After they left the sit-down interview with church officials, they caught Roger Clark in the lobby. He gave a different answer about why they've been so secret about the fund that I think was very illuminating about their fear that if members knew how much money the church had, they would think twice about tithing. Latter-day Saints believe that the point of tithing isn't necessarily to enrich the church, that it's about showing your commitment to God and being willing to make a sacrifice, and they believe that God will bless those who tithe. I thought that was a very important point. And, and and paying, paying tithing is more a, a sense of commitment than it is the church needing the money. And so they never wanted to be in a position where people felt like, um, you know, they, they shouldn't make the contribution. Because the uh, church didn't need it. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I think that may have played some part in it. Boom. Did you guys hear that? Let me rewind that. And let's listen to that one one more time. Um, this is Roger Clark. 
This is the face man. This is the guy the church has coordinated with to have this conversation. Let's rewind back to 1527. And let's listen to the segment again. Why did the LDS church not not tell this was actually uh, it. give me about three seconds here before it starts coming had anything to 15, do with 25 26 27 away. here we go given these denials ian and rachel wanted to better understand the fund's secrecy if this money is really for an economic downturn why hadn't they talked publicly about it after they left the sit-down interview with church officials they caught roger clark in the lobby he gave a different answer about why they've been so secret about the fund that I think was very illuminating about their fear that if members knew how much money the church had, they would think twice about tithing. He just said that the reason, so so the Wall Street Journal guy says, look, we got Roger Clark outside, we, we got him aside away from all of this and we continued the conversation. And Roger Clark told us that the reason the church didn't talk about these things was because the church was afraid that people would stop paying tithing. Let's see if that is accurate. Let's see what Roger says. Latter-day Saints believe that the point of tithing isn't necessarily to enrich the church, that it's about showing your commitment to God and being willing to make a sacrifice, and they believe that God will bless those who tithe. I thought that was a very important point. And, and paying, paying tithing is more a, a sense of commitment than it is the church needing the money. And so they never wanted to be in a position where people felt like, uh, you know, they, they shouldn't make the contribution. Because the uh, church didn't need it. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I think that may have played some part in it. During his so you have it, the, the church, Roger Clark, and you, if you listen to that again, you'll notice he's stammering. He starts to talk and then he's choosing uh, every word really carefully uh, and seems to hesitate. Let's play it one more time and let's hear him kind of hesitate willing to make a sacrifice, and they believe that God will bless those who tithe. I thought that was a very important point. And, and paying, paying tithing is more a, a sense of commitment than it is the church needing the money. And so they never wanted to be in a position where people felt like, um, you know, they, they shouldn't make the contribution because the uh, church didn't need it. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I think that may have played some part in it. So there you have it. The members get told it's the second coming. The employees get told it's the second coming. That's the idea that's left both explicitly and implicitly. The public over there is told that it's a rainy day fund, although that's all bullshit and doesn't make any sense. And then Roger Clark outside says, um, yeah they probably were afraid that tithing would drop off. Is that sure? Are you, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, there you have it. The LDS Church can't talk straight about anything. 
I remember reaching out to Elder Holland and I wrote Elder Holland, by the way, Elder Holland is a liar. I've reached out to Elder Holland on multiple occasions and we've had conversations. And I said, Elder Holland, here are my, my 10 big questions. And I think I still have them in my email. One of these days we should do an episode on my 10 big questions for Elder Holland. Um, I, one of my questions was, how much do you guys make? And I asked him other things. Uh, do your kids get free uh, tuition to a university, do, to BYU? Um, do you accumulate wealth? Do you, um, wh what's the reasons for not talking honestly about this issue or that, sh that issue? And he said, brother real, brother real. We, if, if I had time, I would, I would go into detail for you. I wish I could answer these for you. Maybe someday I can, but I won't be able to answer those for you right now. And, and so that's the kind of, um, deflection, stay back. That's the kind of deflection you get from, uh, Mormonism. Uh, you see the th banner on the bottom to join the show call 435 435-277-0511. If anybody wants to come on, you're welcome to, to call the show. Um, otherwise, uh, just recognize I've kind of gone through everything here. Um, I'm going to wait kind of a moment or two here, see if any phone calls come in, uh, but would love to hear from any of you. Um, when I go back over this entire thing, I thought this was very telling. The church doesn't like doing this. They don't want to have conversations with the media. They like controlling the narrative. And so usually when they do it, it's a very controlled setting. Excuse me. It's a very controlled setting there in the conference center or the, the whatever that building is where they all sit in the 40 chairs in the, in the front. And, and then the media sits back and there's only two or three questions allowed and a prepared statement is given. Uh, the church is just not very honest or vulnerable or authentic or transparent. Those are things that Mormonism is not. And so as you sit and, uh, as you sit and um, go over why this money was set aside and try to understand like, why, why can't we just be told? Why can't we just be told? Uh, you begin to get like the whole idea of, uh, sacred, not secret. The whole idea of giving multiple narratives to different uh, segments of interested parties, the idea of always deflecting and keeping those parties from talking to each other. Um, there's so many mechanisms in Mormonism that that keep honesty as a, a last resort. And the only time the church does reach out and do this, the only time the church does reach out and do this um is is when they realize they're losing. So I guess I'm guessing that there is been some uh, understood negative reaction from the church collectively, the membership collectively, towards this hundred billion dollars that they feel a need now to go out and start having some conversation about it. My two cents would be just not to have a secret in the first place. That'd be my two cents. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode today. I do want to just throw out before we close, and if somebody wants to call still, you're welcome to. Um, I just want to talk for a moment. Ta-da. So Mormon Discussion is an umbrella. We've got lots of other podcasts. I just want to note a couple of cool things that have happened. Uh, Radio Free Mormon. Uh, if you're not listening to Radio Free Mormon, hands down, the best Mormon podcast out there. Uh, if anybody is is into podcast, if you want to understand the history, um, hey, let me stop here for just a moment. David, um, you say it's a low blow that, by the way, Elder Holland is a liar. 
Elder Holland is a liar. And, and I'm going to be honest. So if somebody is constantly deceiving me, David, um, I'm going to address the fact that it's a deception. I'm tired of being lied to. And so here I am on this side of things, and I am more than happy to give the benefit of the doubt when it when it comes across. And I think I've done that today, We're talking about the storehouse, for instance. But Elder Holland has lied on a multitude of occasions, a multitude. Um, and so I understand the whole thing of like, let's be positive. No, let's not be positive. Are you positive with people when they're when they're being uh, racist and to your face about somebody you know across the street? Are you, are you positive with others who uh, are cheating you and deceiving you or people who take advantage of you? No. You only, we only ask this of our religious leaders. Be nice. They're good people. I don't think they're good people, especially collectively. And I'm going to stick by my guns. Elder Holland is dishonest. He's a deceiver. He's deceptive. And he's lied on a multitude of occasions. Um, we can start off with the story about the dogs and the young missionary who goes on a mission and meets up with his older brother, uh, and the dogs are barking. And in one story, they're Rottweilers and another story, they're Doberman pincers. Um, it's, it's all dishonest. And so we're just going to have to be, um, uh, straightforward about elder Holland and about his dishonesty. So back to what I was saying, radio free Mormon, uh, is the best podcast around. And by the way, it won the Brody Awards for Best Podcast of 2019. The Brody Awards just took place. Radio Free Mormon is better than me. Um, I think he's the best podcast out there. And so if you're looking for a good podcast, I would suggest uh, listening to Radio Free Mormon. Also, Marriage on a Tightrope, uh, Alan and Katie. Alan and Katie are doing, if anybody's doing the Lord's work, it is Alan and Katie. Uh, Alan and Katie are a mixed faith couple. Katie is a believer and in. Alan is a disbeliever and out. And those may be too simple of uh, definitions for them or labels for them. But their podcast is meant for those who are in a mixed faith marriage. They have a Facebook group, Marriage on a Tightrope. Um, they do. Uh, they go out to dinner with listeners. They they spend a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to help mixed faith couples navigate Mormonism. Um, could you support them? They, If you're a mixed faith couple and, and you're benefiting from marriage on a tightrope, would you please just go to their website and make a donation to them? Um, would you reach out to Alan or Katie? They've got a Venmo. Would you just send them a few bucks? Um, they don't really get much in way of financial support. And, and they're doing as good of a work as anybody in this podcast arena. Um, there are other podcasts out there under us as well. Rainbow Mormon Podcast, which is an LGBT uh, Mormon ally podcast. Um, it is a, a, great, a great work as well. And so it would be cool if people would uh, support these podcasts and support the umbrella and help us to continue far into the future. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We went into the audio. You can find the Wall Street uh, Journal audio. Uh, as soon as I close up this podcast, I will post it in the links. Um, in fact, it'll be easy if I do it right here. So give me a second. But otherwise, I'm glad you guys all tuned in today. I hope the camera was a lot better. I hope the audio was was good, if not tolerable. Um Here's the Wall Street Journal audio coming uh, your way in the comments. 
Uh, appreciated all the feedback today. I appreciate all of you who tune in and listen and, uh, and dig Mormon discussion and all of its various podcasts under its umbrella. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed this work. It's been 10 years almost now, and I've really enjoyed. I hope you guys have a great day. This was a lot of fun. We'll keep doing these. I want people to, to call in. I want people to ask questions. You can ask anything. And, uh, and unlike the Mormon church, I've always tried to be really honest, open, transparent, and vulnerable about my own journey and about all the messiness here. I hope you guys all have a great day. Mm-hmm.